This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, a new medical school coming soon to Vaughn. Help for independent cinemas and vaccine ethics. Vaccine discrimination. Whoever thought those two words would be put together? It all began a couple of weeks ago when news broke that people wanting to attend the Springsteen Broadway show had to be fully vaccinated with FDA-approved vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J. That sent shockwaves throughout Canada, especially affecting those who had AstraZeneca as their first shot and even their second. They would be barred from entering the theater. And what really struck fear in the hearts of many, would this kind of vaccine policy become more widespread throughout the United States? U of T bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman joins us on the feed now with his take. Thank you, Kerry, for being with us. Happy to be here. So one of your areas of expertise is COVID-19 pandemic ethics. What do you think of this policy that was initially rolled out in the United States around the Bruce Springsteen Broadway show? Well, you know, this policy, and it's, it's whether it's called that or not, this is really the face of vaccine passport. You know, that decisions are made that are really not grounded in science, that are much more bureaucratic as to what's acceptable and what's not. And what would be scientific is does the vaccine work or not, and does it reach a certain threshold? So this is the problem, is they can be very divisive. They could divide people for no good reason. Now, the producers of the Springsteen, my understanding concert is that they've changed their mind. They've relented, I guess I could say. And so, but it does raise the question in the United States and even Canada, are private venues going to be adopting various policies and globally that are going to divide us without good reason? And you said that it should be based on science. So what gives venues both in the U.S. and in Canada the right to feel that they can roll out that kind of policy? Well, you know, what they are doing is because the, the, the United States has never approved AstraZeneca. You know, my, my take on that would be they're really, honestly, they're up to their necks in vaccines and they don't need it. Uh, so that's one of the things. But when we look to the international picture, you know, various countries have selected various vaccines for various reasons. And if we don't have global standards on this, it could be very problematic. And, you know, this is, this is very divisive, and that, that's the problem with vaccine passports is, you know, they're an infringement on our, really our freedom of movement, which is something we don't think about much. But it's also, you know, there's an element of surveillance to it as well. But I do get it, and that vaccine passports globally, whether we love it or not, are coming. There's no question about that. The question is, how do we do that one fairly? And how is it enforced? And how are those decisions made? You know, it's interesting. I continue to follow what's going on in the United States. And there was a a time with the uh, playoffs in hockey, the New York Islanders, for instance, fans needed proof of vaccination. But there were also seats available, sections available to watch their team live for non-vaccinated people. I mean, that honestly, that that doesn't make any sense to me, and it sort of smacks of segregation. Yeah, it is segregation. And, and you know, with the example you just give, science is out the window again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really, really have to make decisions that are based on science. And, you know, Canada, my take on this is Canada federally, provincially, territorial is no fan of vaccine passports, to which I say hallelujah. It uh, doesn't mean that private venues won't pick it up. Right. But I'm hoping that we, we've got such a pile on effect with vaccinations. So many Canadians are willingly getting vaccinated that I'm just hoping we close this window. But boy, the international situation is going to be tough. Um, I personally work globally on international projects. I'm fully vaccinated with AstraZeneca. I may myself may have problems entering countries uh, because of this bureaucratic situation. So how does that make you feel? just as a human being, to, that you may be stopped from going into certain countries because of the vaccine that you chose? It, it's unfair. It's totally unfair. And what am I supposed to do? It's like, this isn't about me. There's people with bigger problems than me. But, but look, what am I supposed to do? I'm fully vaccinated. What, start over with another vaccine? I'm not willing to do that. Is that safe? I don't even know. So, you know, look at the kind of problem. How do we avert those problems? We go to the science. We have international standards. 
Also, remember, millions of people literally, often but not always in lower-income countries, are being vaccinated with one of the two Chinese vaccines or the Sputnik V, or V as sometimes called, uh, coming out of the Russian Federation. Um, those vaccines work as well. Are we going to accept them? We have to clarify these issues. So we talk about vaccine discrimination. Are we also talking about vaccine nationalism? Yes, I would say we are. I would say we are. Um, you know, and, and you know, the, the, also, if you look to the summer of 2021, which is now here, really, um, you know, the, who can move around in this summer of 2021? Mostly people from high-income countries that are fully vaccinated and the elite from, from lower-income countries that are vaccinated. And I would say, Anna, as well, I, I do not think that our leadership in public health in this country was wise using the language of preferred vaccines. Mm. I think that kind of language is quite destructive. Uh, either they work and they meet a certain threshold or they don't. But preferred vaccine has not been useful language. And therein lies the problem. And now we put the two words vaccine and shopping together and seem to have been encouraged by uh, the powers that be, medically speaking, in Canada. Vaccine shopping. I would agree. And, and, that's, and so now we've got exactly that. People saying, yeah, I've been lining up for an hour and I know I'm holding up the line, but I actually don't want that one. We don't need this. We don't need this at all. And, and you know, the science doesn't bear that up. So how about this? And it's the last thing I'm going to pose because I, I, we could go on and on. There's so much to talk about when it comes to vaccine nationalism and, and vaccine uh, dis- discrimination. But how about this? A week ago, June 27th, was Toronto Vaccine Day. Close to 27,000 vaccines were administered, vaccinations, at Scotiabank Arena. We set a North American record. To me, that I know that that's encouraging people to get their, their vaccinations, but it also sort of missing the point and trying to be the best in North America at something. And it's, it's people's lives and it's their choice to be vaccinated or not. Yeah, I know. It, it kind of came down to almost a competition or a sports metaphor with that one, didn't it? I think that's the big one that was in downtown Toronto uh, on a Saturday. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, these things get blended by quite a lot. What I do take from that, though, is what, what we've been really successful at as Canadians, and I say the people, not so much our leadership, is, is getting out there to get vaccinated. You know, we are really, every time we do that, it's not just you, me, or our families. It's a community commitment, and it's a good one. Well put. U of T bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman, what a pleasure having you join us on the feed. Please come again. Happy to do so, Anne. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. So, is proof of vaccination on the horizon? Tina Cortez now with that story. Kara Zwiebel is the Director of Fundamental Freedoms with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Kara, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get right to it. What is the CCLA's take on vaccination passports? So we have a lot of concerns about, um, you know, any system that will premise sort of ordinary participation in Canadian society on proof of vaccination. Um, I think international travel raises different questions um, that, you know, for the most part, we understand that governments have the right to to make requests of people entering the country and to, to require different things. But when we talk about using a vaccination passport or sort of some, some sort of proof of vaccination within Canada, um, we're really talking about fundamentally kind of changing how our society works, right? The idea that you'd have to show some sort of documentation in order to access basic public spaces. And that's, um, that's a place that we don't want to see Canada go. Does the CCLA think then that it's inevitable that we will require passports or vaccine passports for international travel? And what about domestic or national travel? So, I mean, I think we've already heard that there are, um, you know, that there are countries that are requiring some sort of proof of vaccination to, to enter. And Canada has, has announced that, um, fully vaccinated people entering Canada can forego the opportunity can forego the the quarantine requirement. Um, so so that's not quite the same as saying you need to be vaccinated to enter. Um, but it you know it's close enough I would say. 
Um, so as far as it being inevitable, I think to a certain extent, we're already in a situation where internationally uh, countries are going to require some sort of um, proof of vaccination or, or there'll be additional steps that people need to take if they want to enter the country. Um, at, at the domestic level, um, we have heard that some provinces, uh, Manitoba in particular, has, has talked about different requirements for people entering the province who have been fully vaccinated. Um, there are still details that we don't really know about exactly how, how that's going to be administered, how they're going to be, you know, checking for, um, for this proof. The, the reality is that, you know, prior to the pandemic, we never really had, um, Provincial borders never really existed in terms of the movement of people. I mean, we, we have interprovincial trade issues, but um, people have always moved freely within the country without the need to sort of stop at any border checkpoint or anything like that. That has changed dramatically during the pandemic, and some provinces have, have erected really elaborate sort of administrative structures to um you require people to apply when they want to enter the province. Um, some provinces have even said if you want to move to this province, you need to apply to do so and be approved. Um, you know, I think those things are very problematic, and I, I'm really hoping that we're going to move out of that situation and get to a place where we accept that Canadians, citizens, permanent residents, have the right to move freely throughout the country. We do have constitutional rights to mobility in our Canadian charter. And um, I think we need to get back to, you know, meaningfully protecting those and, and not prevent people from, from moving around the country. We've, we've heard throughout the pandemic from um, individuals who have been really, uh, really detrimentally affected by some of these things. So how do you do both? How do you maintain our rights along with protecting our health? Well, I think we, um, I think that, you know, we, we continue to be cautious. There is an argument that we've, we've perhaps been overly cautious um, in some instances. So I think we have to take a close look at sort of the, the relative risks here. But, but I think we can both respect rights and, and behave responsibly in terms of public health. We have to treat people equally regardless of their vaccination status because we know that you know, the pandemic has had um, differential impacts on people depending on their, you know, where they live, their socioeconomic status. There's a whole bunch of factors that um, have made the pandemic harder for some than for others. And those same factors are probably going to play in to, to any sort of scheme where we say, you know, some people get a right to this and some people don't. Um, we are still actually, you know, although we've been doing very well as a country in terms of our vaccination rate, I mean, we're still rationing the vaccine in some places. The demand is still outstripping the supply. So to say that, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, you get X, Y, Z isn't really fair when um, many people who would like to be fully vaccinated uh, can't be yet. <laughs> you know, as businesses start to reopen and employees return to the workplace, right, there are those employees, employers who may suggest that they want their employees to be fully vaccinated and back in the workplace, or they even want their consumers and clients to show proof of vaccination. How is that all going to work? And can it work? I don't know how it's going to work. And I, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the direction that we should be going. And I think that, you know, what we'd be authorizing if the government allows businesses sort of free reign to decide that, you know, employees have to be vaccinated, that, clients have to be vaccinated, we're going to really be authorizing a huge array of actors to collect personal health information about individuals without meaningful safeguards on, you know, how that information is collected and stored and used and um, who it can be shared with. Um, and even if you don't think it's particularly private to say, yes, I've been vaccinated, no, I haven't, it still does lead us down, a, I think, a dangerous road to say that all of these different actors can collect this information just for, you know, just for what might be a very fleeting encounter of I'm going to run into a store and, you know, pick up some milk. I think we, we've gotten used to um, being so cautious during the pandemic that any, you know, we've been looking for ways to, to totally eliminate risk. And I think the reality is we, we can't eliminate risk. Hmm. We can take steps to mitigate it. And, and the way that, you know, you personally mitigate your risk is by being vaccinated. And, and frankly, you just, 
you don't have the right to dictate to other people that that's what they have to do. Um, and that might mean that if you're in a place that where, you know, there's people that you don't know, you're going to take extra precautions. You might wear a mask or you might socially distance or, you know, you might do other things. But I think we have to recognize that these are personal choices that people make. They have the right to, to make decisions about their health and about their body. And, um, and we need to respect those. What is the <laughs> hope of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association as we move into this next phase of the pandemic, as we start to come out of it? I mean, I think the hope is that we start to uh, obviously start to roll back many of the restrictions that we've had on very basic uh, liberties. You know, we, we have laws in place right now across the country that essentially dictate whether you can have someone in your own home or not. That's an extraordinary um, level of state intrusion into people's personal lives. And so I think we need to, um, you know, we need to move away from those things. Um, I think that it's totally appropriate for there to be public health guidance about what is safe and what is less safe and how to take steps to mitigate risk. But I think we do need to get away from having, you know, emergency laws regulate every aspect of our lives. At some point, you know, the word emergency sort of loses its meaning. I mean, we've been in this situation for a year and a half now, and it's time to start recognizing that COVID is something we have to live with and figure out how we're going to live with it while still respecting um, people's rights and freedoms. I, I hope that we get back to a situation where we're a real country again, not a country where you, you need special permission to enter, you know, one province or another, because that's really had an impact on people's lives. I mean, we've heard from lots of people who, um, you know, have, have really compelling reasons for wanting to visit family members in other parts of the country. Um, they are willing to take lots of steps to mitigate risk, to self-isolate, and pro- some provinces have just said, no, we're, we're not willing to take that risk. You simply can't come in. So I think we need to get away from that and recognize that we, we're going to have to live with this risk and um, figure out how we live with it uh, and, and still comply with the rights that we have under our Constitution. If our listeners want more information about the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, where can they find it? We are at uh, ccla.org and on Twitter at CanCivLib. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. After the break, the mayors of Vaughan and Richmond Hill join the show. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Summer is here, case numbers are down dramatically, vaccination rates are soaring, businesses are reopening, people are gathering safely. Wow, there is a real sense of optimism in the air. You can feel it everywhere in York Region, including in the city of Richmond Hill. Acting Mayor Joe DePaula joins us now with Richmond Hill's reopening plans and so much more. Thank you, Acting Mayor DePaula, for joining us on the feed. Well, thank you, Anne. I'm glad to be here, and I'm so excited to start welcoming our residents back to our facilities and programs. Oh, and we're, we're really getting close. And you and Council have been working on this for a very long time, the reopening plans. How does that feel for you right now as acting mayor of Richmond Hill? You've been at the job for just a little over four months. It's got to be a great feeling. It is. We're on the brink of getting back to some version of normal, and it feels great. You know, the city is taking a gradual, safe approach to reopening. On uh, richmondhill.ca, our residents can see the multi-step plan that corresponds to the province's gradual reopening. Our, our parks, trails, outdoor amenities are open for everyone to enjoy. But, but registration for our in-person summer camps, our park adventure program, and virtual programs is, is now open. Our sports fields and courts are available again through permits, and although some restrictions apply uh, for everyone's safety, uh, we're so pleased to, to be offering these services again. People love to go to City Hall. How is that doing in terms of reopening? When do you see City Hall, Richmond Hill, reopening to the public? Okay, well, our main offices at City Hall 
are closed to the public right now, and many of our staff are, are also uh, working from home and not going in there. But during uh, this uh, stay-at-home order, we've taken the opportunity to renovate the first floor of our municipal offices. Uh, they've, done a, they've done a fantastic job on the public-facing portion of the building, and when our residents uh, arrive, and we hope in September, uh, they're going to have a, a new, much more user-friendly experience it will, it will be a lot easier to navigate City Hall, and I just, can't, I just can't wait to welcome our residents back. You and City Council putting a lot of hours and a lot of hard work into this reopening plan. I know months and months and months of hard labor on this one, really not knowing, though, when it would be implemented. How did you do it? How did you and Council figure out what, what was going to be reopening, and not necessarily when, but in what order? Okay, well, overall, I mean, Richmond Hill has taken a measured approach to, to reopening to ensure safety. And we've, we've also had to follow closely provincial guidelines and, and make sure that we're compliant with, with uh, the provincial regulations. But we are excited for the reopening, but we also want to thank our residents for being so patient. Um, we, we know... Uh, with many many of our city staff have been redeployed to support the local vaccination clinic, uh, as well as parks operations. And this gradual approach is necessary to allow us time for staffing, training, and to prepare our facilities, such as our pools and our arenas, to reopen safely. Let's talk about not necessarily reopening, but opening a brand new GO station in Richmond Hill. It opened to the public on the 28th of June. How incredible is that? Transit is at the center of so many cities, and it's your in your case, it's it's been crucial. We've got the ex- North uh, Young Extension coming up, and also now a new GO station in Richmond Hill. How cool is that? Well, it's great. Uh, the province has realized the the need for transit infrastructure in Richmond Hill, and and they have delivered. I mean, I've, I've talked to you before about the exciting news that the subway is coming to Richmond Hill, and that was one of our strategic priorities. But but now it's it's a pleasure to announce uh, that the Bloomington GO station is operational. And it was just a pleasure to join Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney, uh, her Associate Minister Kinga Surma, and Michael Parsa, and Metrolink CEO Phil Verster. Uh, we had an official opening there at that fabulous new Bloomington GO station. Uh, it, it comes with a thousand parking spaces on a three-level parking structure, plus a, a passenger drop-off area. And from the time you arrive in the enclosed parking lot to, to your departure on the tracks, travelers are completely shielded from the weather. Hmm. So what does it mean to the residents of Richmond Hill to have that GO station right in the, the heart of the city, if you will? Well, it, it's, it's actually at the, you know, more servicing the north end of Richmond Hill. This is, this is an extension of the Richmond Hill line uh, from Major Mackenzie to Bloomington. So uh, just like the subway is ex- extended from Finch Station to Highway 7, uh, this, this extension of the line and this brand-new terminal station uh, costs $85 million, and, and it, it means the world to our residents. The the um, Major Mackenzie GO train station was absolutely at capacity. Uh, it, it was it was a nightmare for commuters to get to get in there uh, because of the demand and the limited parking. But uh, with the opening of this new station, completely changes the experience for for so many people in Richmond Hill. And uh, because of that, I'm just thrilled. Can you? Call yourself in Richmond Hill a transit city now, if you think about it, with the extension of the Young North Subway and now this new GO station. I mean, it's transit everywhere for everyone. It absolutely is, Anne. And it's a, um, a, a, new, a new type of urban in, in Richmond Hill. We, we've got, um, we are so well serviced by transit infrastructure. At Young and Highway 7, there are five modes of public transportation intersecting all at one point, and that, that is unique to any city in North America. There, there isn't anyone else that can make that claim that, that Richmond Hill can about um, Highway 7 and Young Street. Now with the addition of, of Go uh, Rapid Service, uh, virtually an express route right to Union Station, we uh, can definitely uh, declare that 
Richmond Hill is very well serviced in in terms of public transit. So transit, let's now talk about the environment. Your community energy and emissions plan, very important, has already been given the stamp of approval by council. It is underway. So what are the key components of the community energy and emissions plan? Okay. Well, I, I want to talk about the plan, but I, I, I want to state off the bat that Richmond Hill can already make the claim today that we have the second lowest greenhouse gas emissions per capita in Canada. So we're starting off from a, from a great place, but, but now building on that commitment to protect the environment and, and becoming more resilient to the effects of climate change, the city has approved its first community and emissions plan. Sorry, community energy and emissions plan. So uh, to realize this vision, the city and the community have worked together, um, that, and that's why we've developed a toolkit. It's a, it's a guide to talking to people in your life about climate change. It's a great resource for our residents as we all tackle climate change together, and that resource is available on our website. One thing I know you believe in very strongly, formerly Deputy Mayor, now Acting Mayor of Richmond Hill, is keeping your community informed. How important, though, is it to hear from the residents themselves so they inform you about what's important? Well, that's right, Anne. Uh, that, to me, that's, that's the most important thing. My, my most valuable um, tool for doing a good job is the input that we receive from, from our residents. And our, our council really wants to engage our residents um, we have a official plan process underway now where we're consulting with the public to see how they want their community to grow. We've unveiled a Vision 2041 plan, but it really is built in collaboration with the public. So I strongly encourage residents to subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter at richmondhill.ca, and that, that, will, that provides current city news and projects like the ones we've talked about today, but only through communicating and working together can we make this this city um, a great place to live. Hmm. So much to look forward to in Richmond Hill, finally, as we turn a major corner when it comes to this pandemic. Acting Mayor Joe DiPaola, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Happy July. Thank you, Anne. Take care. Vaughn Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua is constantly looking forward, looking ahead. It was sometimes challenging for him to keep up the pace these past 17 months, especially at the lowest points of the pandemic. But the mayor, with the support of his council, persevered. Mayor Bevilacqua joins us now on the feed to discuss advancing health care, innovation and education in Vaughn. Welcome to the feed, Mayor Bevilacqua. I am. City building continues here in the... Uh city of Vaughan, we, we have uh, great projects uh, that uh, have been realized as a result of a lot of hard work uh, by, by the community, uh, and also projects, I think, that speak to uh, very important blocks uh, of uh, city building. A uh, city without a hospital isn't really a city at the end of the day, but now we have here a Cortellucci Vaughan Hospital on, on June the 6th. We officially opened uh, doors as a full-service community hospital. You probably remember that uh, uh, we had to respond, of course, to the call uh, on uh, February 7th to, to help out with the COVID-19 challenge. The province uh, called us, uh, called upon the, the, the hospital to, to open and, and help with uh, the capacity challenges that we were facing in the greater Toronto area. So in many ways, uh, this hospital really is uh, intersected with history, and we answered the call, and we answered it uh, exceptionally well. And full service now, full service community hospital, what does that mean? Well, I think of uh, anything that a hospital can, from uh, you know, birthing to uh, to taking care of obviously patients with uh, various uh, challenges, uh, mental health issues that now can uh, be uh, resolved and aided in, uh, in in at that hospital. There are, you know, we have uh, many centers of excellence in that hospital. It's it's just uh, a world class hospital that uh, you know it's the first smart technology hospital in. Uh, in, in the in the country, and uh, you know, you, when you look at modern surgical services, advanced diagnostic imaging capabilities, the specialized clinic, uh, uh, 
really the very best, you know, in intensive care beds, medicine, birthing, pediatrics, and many other specialized programs. It's a, it's a world-class hospital, and um, sometimes, you know, uh, patience pays off. You know, we waited for a long, long time to get this hospital, and we went from no hospital to a world-class hospital. Great amount of patience for the future patients. Let's talk about the opening of Hospice Vaughn. So we know that the full-service hospital, the Vaughn Cordelucci Hospital, is helping people with whatever they're dealing with in terms of medicine. End of life, palliative care is so important. The official opening of Hospice Vaughn took place on June 24th. Tell me more about it. Well, it's really important. I mean, Hospice Vaughn will serve as a place of strength and support for family members who want the very best for their loved ones. And uh, everyone, I think, deserves to rest uh, with dignity and compassion during the last stage of life. And it's, it's very important to understand that it goes beyond the building itself. Uh, the building is a physical structure, but the interaction takes place uh, between people, uh, real people, facing uh, the end of life is, is really what this building is, is truly all about. It's the manifestation of that positive energy that uh, what I refer to as the higher frequency energy of love, compassion, understanding, nurturing spirits that, that really make this place a, a, a special place. And I also want to say great things about the people who comprise the, the staff members of Hospice Vaughn, whether they are paid or volunteers, none of this would be possible without their heartbeat within that building. Uh, that's right. And I, and I think that it's the humanity part. That's why I stressed that earlier on in the interview when I talked about the, you know, the, the fact that there's a physical structure, but within that there are, you know, uh, human spirit uh, is very much uh, alive. The, the connection that people have uh, amongst each other, and 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 the sense of mission and purpose. Uh, this these are the types of projects that really uh, define life's purpose, and and that to me is very important in a community. I think when people rally around uh, around projects that are meaningful, that really go beyond their own self interest, uh, and uh, and act in a very selfless manner. Uh, that brings a lot of joy to my heart because I think that the purpose of life is to give back. Well said. When I read about the plans York University has to establish a school of medicine in Vaughan, two words came to mind. Wow and incredible. Can you elaborate? What What is the plan and how important is this to the future of medicine but also to Vaughan's future? Yeah, well, a few years ago at the Bond Chamber of Commerce, when I delivered my State of the City address, uh, I, I, I re- and Rhonda Lent, the president of uh, the university, was there. Uh, I announced that, you know, one of my goals as mayor was to bring a medical school and to have a hospital precinct that was world-class, attached uh, to the hospital, obviously, in the 82 acres of land that we have as a city. And I can tell you that I received an incredible response. And... Uh, and Rhonda and I have been working very closely to make sure that the, the premier and his cabinet uh, listen to our message. Because when you have a world-class hospital, attaching a medical school to it is very wise. It, uh, it, there's a lot of synergies between uh, the two institutions, and it'll create a lot of opportunities for people to really uh, learn and to have a great experience uh, next door to Canada's only smart technology hospital. Mm. And so this is the type of... Um, of, um, I guess, synchronicities that you want between institutions that, uh, and efficiencies, and, and also just the sheer fact that uh, uh, the School of Medicine of York University is quite different from others. It's very much community-based. Uh, it has a different, a different approach uh, t- towards medicine, and that's why I'm a big supporter of, uh, of uh, Rhonda Linton and her team. And she actually appeared uh, in front of council and uh, I moved the motion that, and council actually full support of this uh, transformational uh, opportunity. So all to say that things here in the city of Vaughan uh, were very busy. As COVID persists, city building uh, persists as well. I didn't take a single break. I still, I still continue uh, to focus uh, and my council and the entire city uh, focuses on, on, on continuing to build those building blocks that are required to, to, uh, to build a, a very uh, 
a world class, let's say, world class city, and that's our intention, and 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 uh, we stay on purpose. You have been valiant in your efforts, and you have been there for the citizens of Vaughan every step of the way. So, how do you feel right now? We are just into the first weekend of July. How do you feel about Vaughan residents? and what they have done throughout this horrible pandemic to stay strong, to stay safe, and to help get us out of this? Well, they're exceptional citizens, and uh, they, you know, law-abiding citizens who care about each other, who care about one another, who uh, continue to work uh, through these challenging times, uh, who are always ready to give a helping hand uh, to neighbors and friends, and uh, as as our interview today illustrates, uh, you know, there's still, you know, a hospital opening, a hospice opening, a uh, future uh, medical school uh, on the hospital precinct line. Life goes on, and that is what I find very fascinating uh, about the citizens I've been representing over 30 years uh, in Parliament and uh, here at City Hall. Um, they're exceptional. I mean, they, uh, they really do embody the very best of what Canadian citizenship is truly all about, which is, you know, you're loving, caring, uh, nurturing people who, uh, who pull their resources together, share in a common vision, and make things happen. You know, it's interesting. I know you have great affection for uh, students, for young people, young citizens, in and great respect in Vaughan. Something like the School of Medicine gives really young students now something to work toward. That's right. And, you know, and uh, when I became mayor in 2010, we didn't even have a university. Now we have Niagara University that specializes in, uh, in uh, education. And it's been, it's had a different dimension to our city, a very important uh, dimension. But there's a trend here, right? Education is obviously key. Education is very important to me, as it is important to the citizens of Vaughan. And so, slowly but surely, uh, you know, we continue to build towards that. We, you know, we had the first university in, in the history of Europe region in Niagara University. Now we focus on the School of Medicine, and this will attract other educational institutions. You know, it's fascinating to know that, you know, in a population of 1.2 million, and I'm talking about Europe region now, uh, we did not have a university until Niagara University uh, opened up, and you know uh, there will also be a York University campus in Markham. But just imagine, 1.2 million people with no university. Hmm. Now that has changed for the better. Absolutely, and you know what? I want to thank you for your leadership, Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua, the Mayor of Vaughan, and thanks for joining us on the feed. I look forward to our next time together. Thank you, Anne. Appreciate it. Stay safe. When we come back, support for independent cinemas. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Small businesses have been hit really hard by this pandemic, including small neighborhood movie theaters. Heather Seaman is next with the Cinema Relief Fund. First, briefly tell us about Hot Docs for listeners who aren't familiar with it. All right, so Hot, hot Docs is, um, is uh, many things. It's Canada's, uh, uh, North America's uh, leading documentary festival. Uh, it, we own uh, and operate uh, the Hot Dogs Ted Rogers Cinema in Toronto, which is uh, one of the few uh, documentary cinemas in the world, and I would argue the greatest. Uh, and we, uh, during the pandemic, launched uh, Hot Dogs at Home, which is our uh, digital platform for documentaries. How are independent cinemas different from other cinemas? So independent cinemas are, are typically... Um, more community-focused than, say, a major chain like Cineplex. They are meant to be uh, the hub and town hall for a community, uh, meant to be a place where uh, film is the starting point, but conversation and community is really the focus. Um, Often, independent cinemas are, uh, you know, the only cinema in a a given town. So a small town that has a cinema, that's where you watch films. Uh, They're more heavily curated, so it's not just showing the latest uh, uh, Marvel movie, but it's really finding films that speak to issues of the day, films that will open up perspectives, and, and films that will bind people together. 
So that leads me to this next question. How hard has your sector of the industry been hit by the pandemic? And if you can tell us if some cinemas have been forced to shut down for good. Uh, it's, you know, it's been awful. It's been 15 months now of, of cinemas that have been shuttered. There were some cinemas across the country that opened for different stretches of time. But I think, you know, as a, as a culture, we're not ready to reenter the cinema uh, or weren't ready. Uh, people are, are nervous to be in uh, crowded indoor spaces. Uh, there, the content wasn't uh, it just isn't there. There's there, the films uh, weren't available for screens. Uh, most and, and you know, like I said, most cinemas have been just closed uh, since the pandemic hit, uh, and their sources of revenue have been uh, nil uh, for the most part. So it's 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 been a struggle, uh, and even when when cinemas do reopen, they're reopened in some provinces now, not uh, not yet in Ontario. Uh, it's going to be a long, long slog to, to bring people back, make them feel comfortable, uh, and get them off their couches. People have spent the past few months being so uh, so uh, used to, they've gotten used to watching on their couch on a small screen uh, by themselves. And uh, so I think it's going to take a while to get people back to, back to the cinemas and, and some cinemas, unfortunately, won't make it through uh, that period of time. They just don't have the financial resources. Tell us about the Hot Docs Independent Cinema Relief Fund and why it was necessary. Uh, great question. So we Hot Docs has been fairly lucky. We're, we're a, a bit unique in our circumstance. We're a festival and a cinema, and we do a lot of other things. Uh, and we made a really quick uh, quick shift to to, uh, to, to, to being online which really served us well. And, and we have a loyal, loyal membership of 10,000 people that have helped sustain us. Um, so we were lucky. We, we, we had uh, not as bad a year as we were expecting, and we were able to, to uh, pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. And I recognize that we have had resources, both financial and human, to help us keep going. Uh, as we got to our festival, we recognized that we should probably um, pay it forward and share some of the good fortune we've had with uh, with cinemas that have not been so lucky. We launched uh, the Cinema Relief Fund to uh, to help our donor, to help our audiences find ways to support uh, their local cinema or local cinemas across the country. They uh, audiences film film loving audiences don't want to see independent cinemas go away, and we wanted to be the facilitator to help get some money to help sustain those cinemas while they struggle to keep the lights on. And watch your voices dropping there as well. And how many cinemas will benefit, and what parts of the country are they in? Uh, yeah, and why were they selected as recipients of the funding? So we had a, a fulsome application process. We invited all independent cinemas across the country to apply uh, we got uh, a very good number of applicants from a range of uh, locations uh, from across the country. Um, and uh, we were able, so we raised uh, uh, over $70,000 uh, and were able to support all of the cinemas that applied. Through the fund, we supported 29 uh, cinemas across the country, from some in Toronto, where we're based, uh, cinema in, uh, cinemas in BC, PEI, and uh, you know, a pr pretty broad uh, geographical representation. And will the money really put a dent in anything? That's a good question. I mean, every in our experience, and from what we've heard from a lot of the cinemas we interact with uh, regularly, you know, it's 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 not going to it's it's not going to it's going to pay. It's going to help. Every dollar counts. I think we're we're, we're talking about uh, we're talking about cinemas that are that are really struggling and uh, have expressed the, the fact that every dollar will help them, uh, you know, continue going for a little while. Uh, and I think that's important. And what, I mean, aside from the the money we raised, what we really wanted to do was just raise awareness. The 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 idea that if people want their local cinema to survive, they're going to have to help in any way they can. Some of that is by contributing uh, a donation, if that's possible, and a lot of that is just coming back to the cinema, buying tickets, 
uh, buying a membership, buying popcorn, uh, spreading the word on social media, advocating, uh, advocating for all branches of government to help support the sector. I think uh, any action at this point will lead to, uh, you know, snowball a whole bunch of other actions. And that's what we are really hoping to accomplish. Where can people get more information and if they wanted to donate? So, so our campaign has ended. You can go to our website, hotdocs.ca, to take a look at information on the campaign that was. Uh, my, my suggestion now is if you want to continue to support uh, support your local cinema, uh, you should go to the website, send an email, and ask how you can contribute. You know, we've seen we, we've seen audiences from across the country ask the same question, uh, and we were just we were just playing the role of of matchmaker for a while. At this point, it is vital that people can get online uh, and go support. The, you know, not just cinemas, restaurants, and uh, theater venues, and concert halls. Um, just support those cultural destinations that are important to you. They're going to need support, not just to, to reopen, but to stay open, to build back their audience, and to make sure that they can sustain uh, into the future. Anything else you wanted to add that we didn't touch on about independent cinema in Canada or, or the uh, Cinema Relief Fund? Uh, and, and I, I, I would, you know, you can watch movies uh, in a million different ways, but if we lose uh, our independent cinemas, we will lose so many, you know, for so many people, they have definitive, life-changing, uh, point-of-view-altering moments uh, at, at the movies. And if we lose that, I'm afraid uh, that we've lost something vital to our culture. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on The Feed. Uh, You're very welcome. This was a pleasure. Now that school is out, in-person camps are set to begin. Jim Langhold's court, basketball court that is, in Newmarket. Basketball is not just growing in New York region, it's exploding with such a desire and a demand to be taught for boys and girls to learn this beautiful sport and get better at it. And one of the great opportunities is taking place now in Newmarket at the Competitive Sports Academy, known as the new kid in the block when it comes to basketball summer camps. Thrilled to be speaking to the director and the genius behind it, Mark Bonate. Mark, how are you? I'm great, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great. I mean, I know what I, we've lived in Newmarket, our family, for almost 20 years. And at the beginning, it was all oh, wow. hockey nets. And now it's <laughs> it's about 90% basketball nets and driveways to hockey. You must be seeing a lot of demand for young boys and girls because I just know in our area, it's all basketball all the time now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we moved to this area maybe about three, four years ago. Uh, we have young children. And, uh, you know, we wanted to put them in basketball. And we've just seen the growth, especially with the Toronto Raptors uh, winning a championship, right, in 2019. Now, obviously, the COVID affected everybody. You're back in business, and you, it's great to see that Nike has helped partner you with the Competitive Sports Academy for the summer camps. How did they reach out, and how did this come to be, Mark? Yeah, so Nike, they do several summer camps throughout the province, um, and they reached out uh, early this year. We were very fortunate for them to... Uh, you know, to, to see what we could offer. Um, they believe that our brand aligned with theirs and our values. And uh, luckily for us, they, uh, they chose us to represent this, uh, this region. So the Competitive Sports Academy running their summer camps, the first camp running the week of July 5th to July 9th, COVID-19 protocols including temperature checks, mask wearing, and regular sanitizing all in place. And what's fascinating about the summer basketball camps that you're running, Mark, is such a huge amount of it is geared towards young girls because they want to learn the game. Absolutely. And um, it's been such a challenge in general when it comes to girls' sports, but um, in, in our spectrum is girls basketball um, and we believe in this area just the, uh, the focus of girls program um, is not available and we're trying to do our best to change the narrative right what is it I mean besides the Raptors what is it about basketball that's really captured the youth of the region of this province I've seen so many basketball camps everywhere and so many kids playing it what what has been the tipping point Again, I think the, the one thing, the growth of the, the NBA, the Raptors itself, but also the growth of WNBA, um, you know, I, we, we all see that there is, uh, you know, it's got a lot of room to grow. And I think girls in general are starting to understand, 
you know, I don't only have to play hockey if I live in Canada, right? Uh, we all know that's our main sport. Uh, so and I think now they're seeing that they can, you know, try other sports uh, and they're loving basketball. And right now the growth is the growth is there. We just need to just offer more resources for girls in general. Speaking with Mark Bonate from the Competitive Sports Academy, New Market, running their summer basketball camps coming up the week of July 5th. And Mark, the other thing that has to be a consideration is cost and finances. And for families where every dollar counts, it is more cost-effective to put your son or daughter into basketball than it is hockey. Yeah, I mean, in general, all you really need is a pair of shoes uh, and some athletic gear, and you're good to go. Um, and if you want to compare that to other sports, yes, it is very cost-effective. What is it? What, no, for kids going to the camp or parents signing their kids up, what can they expect for the week-long camp? What is What are they being taught? So we have um, a wide range of... Um, programming um there's ones for uh let's say just novice beginners um you know those just learning the basics the fundamentals uh we have a shooting camp specifically specifically geared to working on the form the range um and we also have uh, the tail end of our summer in august we have more of an elite camp style where uh, it'll be more of a higher level more challenging for those that really want to expand their their current game What's amazing to me, Mark, whether you're a novice starting out or whether you're the best in the NBA, is how much the fundamentals, working on the basics of the sport of basketball and shooting, is still part of the everyday routine of the best players in the NBA is to young boys and girls just starting out. Yeah, we, 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 have to, we have to agree that this world is based on social media. They see the flashiness. It's great when it comes to sports. But at the end of the day, to get to specific levels, all these major athletes all have sound fundamentals. So in our program, we really focus on that, uh, and, and we do our growth, our, all of our growth based on very strong fundamentals. Uh, with Nike partnering with you for the camp, uh, is, what is involved? What do they bring to the table to help the camp? Obviously, Nike's got, you know, they've got very big brand recognition. Um, they're supporting us as far as promoting uh, the camps at our facility and our program. Um, and, uh, the, you know, again, with all the children coming on board, we're going to be giving them uh, free clothing. Uh, we have basketballs available, uh, and uh, again, we have a lot of other events planned out. Uh, again, pending pandemic rules for the year to come. Uh, so yeah, they they bring they bring a lot to the table for us. Absolutely. Outstanding, Mark Bonate from the Competitive Sports Academy New Market for their summer basketball camps. Uh, how can people get a hold of you, and what website should they go to to register their children? Uh, so our website is. Uh, in, uh, sorry, competitivesportsacademy.com. Uh, we're on social media uh, at Competitive Sports Academy, uh, and all of our information is there. Competitivesportsacademy.com. Mark, a real pleasure. Continued success, and great to see uh, you teaching the love of basketball to the next generation. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Take care, Mark. All the best. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.